October 2000, I was in Fresno, California on a trip, and um, I was coming back another day, and I had one day and a full tank of gas in my rental car, just turned 25 so I could rent a car, full tank of gas, and I had to figure out what to do for that day. And so I got up early, early in the morning in Fresno, California, and I drove. I drove up into the mountains for about an hour and a half. I paid my $4 to get into the national park, and it was dark. And I'm in the forest. Not only am I in the forest, I go through this really long tunnel, which is extremely dark. And I round the corner, and I take a stop. I'm in Yosemite National Park, and I've just come through the tunnel right before you get to the tunnel view at Inspiration Point, and I waited. I waited in the dark until the sun, I began to see the sun and the rays of the sun over the Sierra Nevadas, and I began to see the sun break, and I got out of my car, and I began to see more. I began to see the half dome in the distance and then El Capitan and then the waterfalls. A beautiful sight. Don't get on your phone right now and book it. It's a couple years. Yosemite National Park. Wow. To go through a dark, dark tunnel to wait for the view and then see the majesty of God's creation. As a believer in Christ, it made me cry, it made me worship, and I think we have a picture here to show that picture. This picture doesn't do it justice, but that's pretty close to what I saw that morning. Can I tell you, when you come to know Jesus, you are in the darkness, and you are going through this dark tunnel, and then you turn, and you round the bend, and you see the beauty of the gospel of Christ. And you stop and you wonder and you say, wow. This is the picture of what you see in Romans 6. When you come to the end of Romans 6, you see for the wages of sin is death. It's darkness, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Wow. But then you start to look down in the shadows of the valley. And you wonder, how can I get from where I'm at to there, to the beauty of the vistas in which God wants me to walk? When I think of that picture, how do I get from here to there? I think of Romans 7. I also think of John Bunyan, if you've ever uh, read or listened to The Pilgrim's Progress, kids, a pilgrim trying to progress on the path to the celestial city, that's the walk of a Christian. That's the path of a Christian. Romans 7 tells us the answer, some answers of how do I get from here to there? And he's going to show us in Romans chapter 7 first where you belong. And then he's going to show you the real problem, even though we try to make the problem something very different. And then he's going to begin to speak about his own portrait, his own picture of you've got to admit where you're at and then the strength in which you find to follow Christ. Because if you know Jesus, you are in the path from here to there. And there are shadows and there are peaks and valleys to the Christian life. Maybe you didn't know it when you signed up for it, but there are peaks and valleys 
There is darkness. He's going to show us the shadows. He's going to show us how to drive away the shadows. How do I walk through those dark valleys? How do I fight sin? You got any shadows? You got any shadows that you're walking in right now? Are you doing it alone? Are you trying to do it on your own strength? And if so, how's that working for you? Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. And one of the neatest things about Romans 7 is that Paul is just very raw, and he is very real, and he is very honest about his own life, maybe even more honest than we are with one another on a Sunday morning when we come and say, how are you doing? I'm doing great, brother. I'm doing great, sister. He is honest, and maybe it's a little bit uncomfortable. But there's great encouragement here for us as we walk this path from here to there. Romans chapter 7 will actually begin in the last verse of chapter 6. Just for a little context, uh, page 943 on the Bible on your chair. Words will be up here. I'll take about six, seven verses and we'll unpack it and we'll continue to work through this chapter this morning. The Astros aren't on, okay? So if I go long, they're not on and it's kind of a rough day for us here. I stayed up way too late. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. It's a tunnel. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 7, 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding, underline that word, on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Gives an illustration. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man for while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Paul, why would you say this? Likewise, he's given an illustration. Verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, the cross, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Look back there at verse one where he says, I am speaking to those who know the law. See, he's writing to these Romans, and there's both Roman Gentiles as well as Jews, and so he's primarily talking here about the Mosaic law. And all he's doing, he's not really giving us a lot of information about how marriage works or how divorce works or remarriage works, even though there is plenty in Scripture about that. His illustration really isn't, that's not really the point. His point Um, is in the words binding, that the law is binding. I want you to think about the idea of binding. See, you and I both know, and Paul's walking this tightrope in the New Testament about how the law is good because it's from God, and also there is grace. And he's been talking a lot about grace in the last few chapters. But the law is binding, and I think the implication here is if, if I'm looking for the law to be God and bring me salvation, there is a weight to the law that it was never meant to have, and it is binding, and it is weighty, and it is enslaving. But he gives this kind of raw example that a a Roman or a Jew could understand about, hey, laws have jurisdiction when you're alive, but 
If you're dead, nobody's going to hold you accountable for a traffic law because you're not driving, okay? So he's making this generic kind of lawyer philosophical argument about what's binding and what's not. But if your husband dies, if you know the Old Testament, you know that a woman couldn't divorce her husband in that culture as well, but a man could divorce his wife. But she would be free to remarry if her husband dies. But verse 4 gives us, where's he going with this? It's not an allegory. Allegories have direct correlation. This is not really a direct correlation if you look closely. But look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, for you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You see, old covenant, new covenant language, when Christ died on a cross for your sins, you're no longer bound to the law and the written code and all its requirements. You are now something else. Look at this beautiful phrase here you are you belong to another you're not bound to the law you belong to another do you hear the relational component that we've been seeing from chapter six you have union with christ you're his you are in christ you belong to christ you're not bound to the written code of the law and so what paul is saying is that you're dead to sin, you're dead to the law. When Christ died on the cross, now you are wed. You are joined to Christ, not the law. There's a change in relationship, and why is this good? Why is it good? Let me ask you a question. Be careful how you answer. Do you want to be married to a perfect spouse? Your first thought is, yeah, all, you're thinking about all the things that are wrong with your husband or your wife right now, the person sitting next to you. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I wouldn't have to deal with this, this, and this. But I want you to think about that for a minute. If you're married to a perfect person, guess what? You're always wrong. You always get it wrong. They always get it right. Your parenting is bad. Theirs is good. You're always confessing your sin to your spouse. They get everything right. Anybody want to sign up for that? Mumbling. <laughs> I don't want to sign up. That, that's too weighty. See, the law is perfect. It's God's law. It's, it's perfect. It's good, but it's a, a written code. Be like being married to the perfect person. You're always wrong. And so the law is not bad, but being wed to it would be a challenge. See, the law of being wed to Christ is very, very different. It's way different, and I want to show you why it's different, because you may be sitting there thinking, well, Jesus is perfect too. The law is perfect because it's from God, but Jesus is perfect too, so I'm still the problem. <laughs> Remember the Samaritan woman? John chapter 4. Living under the law, Jesus goes through Samaria the other Jews, the full-blooded Jews, always go around. He goes through it, and he meets a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman at the well. And she's like, why are you here? You're not supposed to be here. You're a Jew. And he says, give me a drink. And he tells her about the living water that he can bring to her. Culturally, there's no way they should be anywhere near each other, and yet Jesus pushes in close to her. The law would say no. And then Jesus says, go get your husband. Jesus knows what's going on, right? 
Go get your husband. Well, I have a husband. Yeah, I know. Uh, the man that with, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. What happens to her under the law? Jesus could have picked up stones and threw them at her. Could have been condemned under the written code. Is that the way Jesus handles her? He doesn't treat her in that way. They continue to speak, and he tells her about a time that's coming, which is now, that they'll no longer have to go to the temple and worship, but you can worship in spirit and truth. And then she talks about the Messiah. And you remember what she does? She goes and tells. She goes and tells people in the city, and she says, I met a man that told me everything about myself. And you know what they do? They come and see. And then they come back to her, and they say, I no longer believe because you said so. I I believe that Jesus is the Savior because I've seen it with my own eyes. Is there a difference in the way a person is bound to the law, Samaritan woman, and wed and belongs to Christ? Absolutely there is. Praise God. Remember this truth. Here's your first truth for today. Believers are not bound by law, but they belong. You belong, if you know Jesus, you belong to Christ, and you bear fruit, as this text says, by the Spirit, the new way of the Spirit, not the written code. Where do you belong? To whom do you belong right now? Do you know Christ who can take your sins like the Samaritan woman, like the prodigal son, and show you mercy? Not from the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, the heart of the law. You know, when you go to the airport and something happens and you have a ticket and you have that person who all they can see is the letter of the law. And you're asking for grace and mercy and you don't get it. Or the accountant, sorry if there's any accountants. The spirit of the law. This is what Jesus gives. Where do you belong? Notice the difference in this text between being bound and belonging to the Savior. What kind of marriage do you want? Do you want a marriage that just has a written code of check this, do this, and if you do that, I will love you, which is not really love? Or do you want a marriage as the spirit of the law that forgives and cares and loves? That's the kind of marriage that you would bear fruit in. That's the difference. Believers belong to Christ and bear fruit by the Spirit. When you think about belonging, you think about the crazy things that people will do to belong. We've got the students in here this morning. Think about your friends. Think about the the things that you might be willing to do to belong to a friend group. And you go off to college and you think about the ways in which you might compromise to belong to something. You think about the ways in which you might compromise to get a spouse and belong, or a gang. You think about the extreme of a gang, that you have to go through a rite and a ritual that is sinful and against the law to become a part of belonging to that group. You see that in cults all the time and how people 
believe things just to belong. You think, think about that for the extremes that you will go to to get pleasure, to belong. But here's the thing. What links will you go to only to find the heavy weight of being bound? The thing that you just keep coming back to. And maybe you're here and you're saying, man, I, I honestly, I belong. I belong in the gutter. Like the Samaritan woman. I belong in the gutter. That's what I deserve. Like the prodigal son. And Jesus says to you, no, not to me. That he can rescue out of you out of that gutter. See, the first thing you need to do and understand as you navigate those shadows between here and the celestial city, you need to know that you're his. That you need to know that you belong to him and it gives you safety and security for the journey. And maybe at this point in the text, you're paying attention and you're like, well, that means the law's bad. You know, my, my net result here, I've talked about a lot about grace and belonging to Jesus and not being bound to the law. The law has to be the culprit. The law has to be the problem. And so Paul stops here and addresses that question. Look at it, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. You've seen this before, chapter 6, a couple times. Yet, if it had not been for the law, so he's going to talk about all the great things about the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And he goes on and on and talks about the benefits of the law. If I could summarize this section, I would say it in this way. Paul is saying that the law is not God. That's our problem. We often make our laws the law of God. The law is not God, but it is good. It is a good guide for you. It is not only a guide to help you know the path of what things like coveting are, but it is also a mirror that helps expose your sin so that you see your sin and see God. And last, in verse 12 and 13, it's a mirror. Excuse me, I just said that. It's a magnet, one of those M words. It's a magnet. The law is good. It is a guide. It is a mirror. But it's also meant to be a magnet to show you God's holiness. See the text. His righteousness. His goodness. It reveals his, his character. And it should draw you and I in. See, here's your point. The law is never the problem. The law itself is never the problem. God's law is not the problem. We are. I want you to think about this in your own life and look at what it says about what the law brings out, though. The law does bring some things out, not because it's in the law, because it's in us. What does the law produce? It not only shows us and exposes our sin, like coveting, but it also produces, when we see it, it produces some things. And you can understand this. It produces sinfulness in my heart. Knowing what not to do. And even says it here. When, when the law says, do not covet, what do I want to do? I want to covet. I've got an F-150. And it's 10 years old and I love it. And it runs great. But every time I come to church and I see your F-250, men, ladies, I want to covet. 
Don't covet. I want to covet. Think about the signs all around you. No fishing. What does it make you want to do? I want to fish right there. No diving. I want to dive right there. No running, kids. No running at the pool. The sign, or maybe it's just mom and dad repeating themselves over and over and over. I want to run. No chipping at the putting green. That's ridiculous. I want to chip right there because you told me not to. But guess what? There are good reasons for all of those laws. If I blade a chip on the putting green, I might take somebody's ankle out. If I dive off the pier, maybe somebody else knows that the water's a foot deep. And if I dive head first, I might break my neck. See, God's laws are meant to be protective. That's what they are. They're meant to care for us. And yet it's the sinfulness within us that bucks that and says, no, I don't want that. And then we blame it on God's law as if the law was the problem. The law is not the problem. The law is a good gift. It's a guide. It directs us. It's a mirror that shows us. And it's even a magnet that shows us who the char- who God is and his character. The law gets a, ra- a bad rap. And this is what Paul's emphasis here, particularly for the Jews who are hearing about grace. It's a good gift from God. Look at Psalm 19. I think we've got it here. Psalm 19 in verses 7 through 11. And I want you just to, to feel this passage a little bit. And what I mean by that is when you hear certain words like commandment, rules, what happens in your heart? Sometimes those words are like four-letter words in our heart. Why is that? Is it because the law is bad or is it because something within us? Romans 7, it's because something within us. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules, uh uh-oh, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, and dripping of the honeycomb, get that picture in your head about God's law. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Is that the way you feel about God's law? Do not steal. Do not covet. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, first to fifth graders. For this is right, so that it will do what? So it will go well for you. There is a guide. There is protection. I think about it in this way. A number of years ago, I had to go get an x-ray on my lower back. I didn't think I had any problems. Lower back, and then I had to get, after that, an MRI on my hip. And it revealed some things. It revealed that there's some degeneration, and I'm like trying to interpret this page. I'm like, what does this mean? And the doctor, without even flinching, said, you're just getting old. And you know what? How silly would it have been for me to go, it's the x-ray's fault. It's the MRI's fault. It's not me. It's the machine. The machine is just showing me. It's a mirror. It's showing me 
my problem. Listen, as I think about this, as I thought about this this week, I thought about my childhood um, and maybe some of yours. Where you grew up, maybe some of you, like me, grew up in what I would have called or I've called a restrictive, like, lots of rules household. Authoritative, a little different than authoritarian. Authoritative household. And you know what I did with that? And you know what I've done with that even as an adult as I look back? I've said, I'm not going to raise my kids that way. (laughs) And, And when I read this passage what I have to realize, and, and there, are, there are ills there. Maybe you grew up in an extremely authoritarian home, and there are reasons for you to go, uh. But maybe you need to think about it in a different way. Maybe you need to think about it in this way. Maybe the laws of my household, the precepts even of the Lord in my household, that when my parents had or have, maybe those are trying to steer me and guide me and show me something that's good. See, we often interpret back that law is bad, but maybe what was bad was what was in my heart. And those laws revealed what was in my heart more than how terrible my parents were. Kids, I want you to think about that. Mom and dad, I want you to think about that right now. Adults, I want you to think about that right now because maybe it is you want to raise your kids a little bit different, and that's cool. But maybe the reality is maybe it was just my sinfulness that the law exposed, that the law exposed that I didn't like and I'm taking my teenage version of what happened in my past and I'm importing it into what I think now about what happened. I tell you, as your kids get older, you figure this thing out a little bit. <laughs> because everybody's, every kid in here probably says, well, everybody else's parents let me, let them do X, Y, and Z. You feel that way? Felt that way? If you raised your hands, you could look around and go, every one of you felt that way. So is it the law or is it your own heart? This text says we need to pay attention to our heart. Silence. So if we want to walk this path to the celestial city in the shadows, we got to know that we belong to Jesus. And we also have to understand the problem is within the problem is not the law, it's not from the outside that the law is good good that our hearts are the problem that we can actually delight in God's law. But there's something else and really the center of this text here in verses 14 through 23. And this is where Paul kind of goes autobiography on us. A lot of I words in here, present tense I words in this section from verse 14 through 23. I want you to think about the life you're trying to live in those shadows, in those peaks and valleys, and I want you to see how honest Paul is about his own life. Look at it with me. Verse 14. Maybe you find yourself here. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold under sin. Verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Been there? 
Now that I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who did it. He's not pushing himself or blaming sin. It's a part of him. But the sin that dwells within me, it's part of him. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do good and what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I made it through. I thought I would miss. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find that the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Do you see the tension? Do you see the battle? For I delight also, here's the tension, I also delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see the tension? Do you see the honesty of Paul? Tonight, some of you, for Halloween, if you have little kids, they're going to dress up. And they're going to dress up in something scary or something pretty or something powerful. And they're going to maybe put on a costume, or at least that's what you think is going to happen, right, Mom and Dad? And they may even have something over their head to be fully in costume, to be in person. Some of you, your kids aren't going to do that, but maybe you're going to turn the light on tonight. I'd encourage you to do that, by the way. Turn the light on tonight. Have some candy. Share it with kids when they come. And either way, you might ask these questions. Who are you? To a little kid. What's under the mask? Who are you? What's under the mask? What I just read is Paul taking the mask off and sharing his own story, his own struggles. He's being honest. You can't navigate the shadows. You can't navigate the peaks and the valleys, the darkness alone. Can't do it. There's an interpretive question in this text, and it's a big one. It's a big challenge. There are good scholars and pastors on both sides of it. So I want to share just a little bit. What's going on here? The question is this. Um, who is Paul talking about? We know we, we, it looks like Paul, um, but when is at what point in Paul's life is he speaking about? Is he speaking about before he knew Jesus as a Pharisee who was trying to keep the law, or is he speaking present day as a believer in Jesus who's maturing and mature in his faith? It's a huge question, and there are good people on both sides of that interpretive question. I think, and, and, and the way that I handle this text will come out of this, you can go study it in all your free time. What I think is, I think what you see is a bunch of present tense verbs from verse 14 on. You see the past tense before. And so what I think is happening here that this is Paul and this is him speaking about himself. He uses the word I 30 times in this text. 
And I think he's speaking present day as a believer, a maturing believer who struggles. The other take is that no, he's an unbeliever because he uses the phrase um, under sin in the flesh, wretched man that I am. And maybe that's your interpretation. We can disagree, I hope. We can have coffee and talk about it if you want to. But I think he is, this is present day, Paul's a believer. But the purpose, whatever, whatever interpretation you come out with, the purpose is still the same, and it's this. Here's your next truth. Battling sin's ongoing desire isn't a self-improvement project. Battling sin isn't a self-improvement project. Whether you're a Pharisee under the law and don't know Christ, you can't bring yourself up to him, or you're a believer and you're trying to do it in your own strength. I think Paul here is battling sin and, he's, and his example and what he's going through is trying to battle sin in his own strength. That's what I think. But there is clearly a battle here with sin's presence because we know that sin is still present, right? The power is broken, but the presence remains. But we can't fight that in our own strength, in our own right. Galatians 5 talks about this. Don't carry out the desires, and he's talking to believers, don't carry out the desires of the flesh, but the spirit, and then he goes into the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the spirit. Walk in the spirit, not the flesh. And I think as we think about this in our own lives and walking down the path I think we often have masks on. For whatever reason, we, we have our masks on. But Paul is telling us to live without masks, to be honest with your struggles. I mean, we've referenced this verse before. I think it's a good one as we battle sin. 2 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you, which is not common to man. That means that we all share struggles. You've got to be honest about it. We've got to do it together. We need to live without masks, not only individually. We need to live without masks in the church. And that doesn't mean that you bear all your darkest secrets in front of everyone. If you notice, Paul certainly is honest here. He doesn't give grave specifics. And yet he's honest about his struggle with sin, how his, he's battling sin. The thing that he very wants to do, he does the opposite. You know the struggle where you go, I believe this, I truly believe this, but I keep struggling with this sin that I know that's wrong. I get up here on Sunday mornings and try to preach a text, and that week, my kids are saying, well, you didn't do that this week, you're telling everybody else to do it. That's a challenge, that's a struggle. There's a lot of emotional energy that goes into that, and Satan would love for you to do nothing else but feel defeated, to feel useless like you're in the gutter, that you don't belong to Christ, that he doesn't extend grace and mercy to you in that place. But we gotta take the mask off. There's a picture. It's Reformation Sunday, so I'm like, how can I use something from the Reformation? There's a painting from kind of post-Reformation Last Supper painting. I think we have it here. And if you notice, there are two men, one guy turned around. There are 14 people in that picture. If you know the Last Supper, that's a problem. There's two extra people in this picture. 
And the two extra people, there's one guy with a cup and he's turned around. In 1557, Lucas Cranach painted this picture and the person turning around is Martin Luther. Like, well, hey, you're, you're elevating somebody way too high here. It's not the point of the picture. He drew the picture to show that Martin Luther needed the cup just like the servant that's bending over next to him, giving him the cup. That we all need, have the common need of the cup, of what Jesus has done for us. We all live in community needing Christ, even Martin Luther, even the celebrity guy. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a place where we're either praying or sharing and somebody says, I know, Pastor, you don't, you don't struggle with that. Well, let me talk to you. We have a common struggle, but we have a common solution in the person and work of Jesus. We need each other. God never meant you to be alone on the road with shadows and valleys. He's built in the church. He saved you individually, but he saved you into a community of believers. Look around. This is why we try to do things to connect you. More than Sunday morning, that we invite you to become part of community groups. And for us, that's just that's a venue so you get to know people in the body that you might walk with them, that you might fight sin together, that you might take this path together to the celestial city. You need one another. We need one another. This is why we have men's groups and women's groups and all kinds of ministries to connect you to one another. Well, if it's not a self-improvement path on my own, what is it? Where does the strength come from? Chuck Swindoll tells the story. He tells the story of a guy named Dimitri Vail. Dimitri Vail was a world-renowned painter, and he did self-portraits way back in that day, and he's from Dallas, and so he had a gallery in Dallas, and he had painted pictures of Hollywood luminaries like James Dean and John Wayne. He had painted presidents like JFK, and many of these, at least their copies, were in his gallery in Dallas. And Chuck Swindoll tells the story of going to this gallery multiple times and says on one time he went and he's just looking at these painted portraits that look like a photographer had taken a picture and put it in a frame. And these amazing frames and these dignitaries of the world and their names on it. And he goes down and he sees at the end of the hall in dimly lit light, he sees a smaller picture with a rugged frame and the picture of someone who looked extremely sad and torn, no name. And so Chuck asked the attendant, who is this? And the attendant said, that's Dimitri Vail. And he painted a picture of himself in a time of a lot of turmoil, inner turmoil, and pain. You know what Paul's done in Romans? He's painted some pictures. He's painted a picture in chapter 1 and 2 of the lost person without Christ. 
He's painted then a picture in chapters three through five of the justified sinner who's come to know Jesus, who's been made right by God through Christ. He's painted then a picture of the victorious believer in chapter six, who's no longer a slave to sin. And then the trajectory almost doesn't make sense, does it? In chapter seven, he paints this picture of what we're about to read, 24. This is, what, this is Paul speaking about himself and his fight with sin, 24. Wretched man, that's the picture he paints. It's a self-portrait of himself. That I am, who will deliver me Deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, we, some people look at this and they say, you know, see, this is Paul as an unbeliever because he says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? It's despair. But you know what's interesting when you look at Paul in other places? He paints the same needy picture of himself. He paints it in 1 Corinthians. If you know the Corinthian church, you know they were pretty messed up. Totally messed up. And as a pastor, he says to them, I am the least, when he's correcting them. He says, I am the least of the apostles. And then in 2 Corinthians, he's continuing to correct them. And he says, if you, are you weak? I am weak. Do you struggle? Do you burn? I burn. He's painted a picture all through the New Testament of his need for Jesus as an apostle who knows Christ. Man, if you're gonna walk that walk down the path in the shadows and down the valley to the celestial city, you gotta know who you are. You gotta know that you don't blame things like the law, that it's you. But you kinda gotta get downwind to yourself and goes, I need Christ, I can't do this in my own strength. And then you look and you see what he says about himself. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, Christ, the Savior, the deliverer, from this, what's the phrase? You see it? This body of death. You know that the Romans likely, if you understand the crucifixion, it's a pretty brutal way to die. For anybody to die. The Romans had unique and troublesome ways in which they would kill, basically kill people. One of the other ways that they would bring about death to a criminal, especially a criminal who had killed someone, is that they would attach the dead corpse, Halloween, here we are, the dead corpse of the dead person to the person that killed them. And what would happen is that over time, the stench and the decay of that dead person would infect the living person who killed them and they would die. That's awful. But many think, as Paul uses this word, this phrase, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, this body that continues to struggle with sin? There is despair there. And what's his answer? His beautiful answer. And this is your thought for the day. This is your takeaway. See, strength to fight the battle is found in trusting the Savior. The strength that you need to walk from here to there is found in trusting and trusting yourself to 
Christ, the Savior, do you recognize, this is an important question, do you recognize your need for God's help? It is the only way in which you can know God. So maybe you're here this morning, you don't yet know Christ, and you're trying to do this on your own. You can't pull it off. You need Christ to deliver you, literally, from your sins, that you might know him And that he might take you on his back and rescue you. Do you recognize your your need for God's help? And here's the thing. There are all kinds of communities out there. There's communities on Facebook. There's communities everywhere to help with different things. But if we're a church or a community that just doesn't have Christ as our strength, all we are is people who commiserate together in our sin, but the strength that we have to lift each other up comes from trusting not ourselves, but Christ who has died for us, who lifts us up out of despair. Dimitri Vale, the gallery I was telling you about just a minute ago, as Chuck Swindoll was leaving, he tells the story of the attendant. As he was leaving the gallery, the attendant came up to him and said, you know, it's our hope. It's our hope that on a better day, Mr. Vale paints a new portrait of himself. Next week, we come to Romans 8. Paul's not done painting this portrait. He shared with us that Our strength and our trust comes from Jesus. But there's something else in Romans 8 that's beautiful. It's a beautiful portrait. Come next week. Let me pray. Father, we confess that if we understand rightly um, our sin and the sins that we struggle with each and every day, that we are in need, that we are in need of Jesus, we are in need of not only his saving power, but his sanctifying power that the law or ourselves can't provide. And that's a deep struggle. So Lord, I pray for us this morning as we think about what it is that keeps us in that place, I pray that we would reach up. We wouldn't reach up to ourselves or to rules, but we would reach up to Christ who lifts us up and gives us strength, enough strength, not a little bit of strength, but all the strength that we need to believe that we belong to him, all the strength that we need to understand our troubles, but to understand our troubles in light of the cross and in light of the Spirit's work in our lives. And so help us not walk out of here today discouraged with the battle that we're fighting or trying to fight or failing at, but I pray that we would walk out of here encouraged that you fight our battles for us, that your Spirit goes before us, that your work in our lives and safety and security that helps us down the path of those shadows and the path to you. 
So Lord, I pray that you would use this text to remind us to take the mask off, to be honest, to get the community of believers to help and build up, but ultimately it is Christ who will sustain us through his grace. Encourage us with that truth this morning in Jesus' name.